Hello and welcome to this Head Talks podcast. I'm Terry Stiastny and I've been speaking to Dasho Chering Tobge. He's the former Prime Minister of Bhutan, a country which has set its goal as increasing gross national happiness rather than just growing the economy. He tells us about how his country's changed and how he himself has coped with the successes and failures of political life. Hi Terry, thank you for having me over. I'm Tring Topge and I'm from Bhutan. And I'm actually speaking from Bhutan, in fact, the capital city of Bhutan, Thimphu, on a bright, sunny day, uh, even though it's a bit chilly because it's winter. I uh, used to be a civil servant. I'm a public servant, but I used to be a civil servant. And when our king introduced democracy in Bhutan, I was the first civil servant to resign from my job and start a pol- to start a political party. We contested the first elections in 2008. We got roundly defeated and I served five years in opposition as the opposition leader. In the second election, we were surprised to get the support and the trust and confidence of the people. And so we formed the government and I served for five years as prime minister. And uh, in the third election, again, we lost the election. And this time, none of our party members are even in parliament. So we have uh, five years to regroup and to rethink and to prepare ourselves for the next elections, which will take place uh, this winter. So I suppose one of the things that comes to mind for many people uh, when you hear the name of, of the country of Bhutan is the idea of promoting gross national happiness rather than just the traditional gross domestic product in the economy. Can you explain a little bit about what that means and how, when you were in office, you tried to put that policy into practice? Well, first and foremost, I must congratulate you, because when people hear of Bhutan, generally, they think of happiness, just happiness. And many think of Bhutan as the happiest country and the Bhutanese as the happiest people on earth. Obviously, this can't be true. And like you correctly said, uh, we try to promote what we call gross national happiness. And this has been a part of an integral part of our development journey. Uh, Way back in in 1974, our king, his majesty, the first king at that time, he was asked about uh, gross domestic product. And he announced at that time to Bhutan and to the world that for Bhutan, gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. And ever since, we've been trying to remain true to the principles of gross national happiness. Now, gross national happiness, put very simply, is an idea that uh, puts the happiness and well-being of the people at the center of the development agenda. How do we do this? By, By ensuring that our economic growth is sustainable by ensuring that economic growth is spread through the country, it is equitable, uh, and that it is balanced with environmental conservation, preservation of our culture, and good governance. So this is, uh, in summary, the basis of what we call gross national happiness. Every government tries to remain true to the ideals of gross national happiness, as indeed we did during our tenure in office uh, as well. How do we promote the ideals of gross national happiness? Now, many people think of 
happiness and Bhutan and indeed even gross national happiness as just promoting happiness as in joy, as in hedonistic sort of joy, happiness, a feeling and emotion. But obviously that uh, isn't something that we can achieve at a national level, nor is it something that while important at the individual level, you cannot guarantee that sort of happiness all the time. So at a national level, we talk of gross national happiness and promoting the conditions for happiness. In implementing government policy for the longest time, governments and indeed citizens were taught to uh, focus on the four pillars of gross national happiness. And these are equitable socioeconomic development, number two uh, being uh, preservation of our culture, number three, protection of our environment, and number four, good governance. So these four pillars actually form the bedrock of gross national happiness. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, when I look back in the last 50 years, I do believe that we have achieved success measured through, looked at through the uh, prism of the four pillars. So for social progress, for instance, even though we are a poor country, every child goes to school, our literacy rate is remarkably high for a country that started implementing modern development fairly recently. Uh, every uh, We have uh, access to free uh, education till university. We have access to free healthcare, uh, given these are very basic, given that we are a poor country. Uh, however, access is widely available and it is absolutely free. In terms of our economy, we have a long way to go. Uh, in fact, today we face a lot of uh, issues, especially regarding uh, cost of living and unemployment. Our economy is not growing uh, partially due to COVID, but partially due to other uh, issues as well. That said, our economy is still very sustainable, at least environmentally sustainable. And per capita GDP, while we should aim much higher, and we do aim much higher, today it is at about a uh, little over $3,000, US dollars per person. And again, for the developing world, it, it is an achievement of sorts, though we have a long way to go. On the Second pillar, in terms of our culture, now we are a, basically a Mahayana Buddhist culture. And there used to be a time when this sort of culture spread from Mongolia through parts of China and Tibet and all across the Himalayas. And today, Bhutan is the only sovereign country that practices Mahayana Buddhism. And so we, I see ourselves as uh, the custodians of a unique culture to the world, a unique spirituality, but a unique culture to the world. This culture is not just alive, it is thriving in Bhutan. So this pillar, the results of this pillar is, I think, uh, extraordinary, given that we are a small country, landlocked and sandwiched between two countries, two large giants. So the third pillar is the uh, protection of our culture, uh, sorry, environment. And Bhutan is, a biodiversity hotspot, more than half a land area is by law protected as uh, protected areas. And more than 70% of our country, in fact, 72% of our country is under forest cover. We are a, a net carbon negative country. In fact, we sequester three times more carbon than we emit as a nation. I think we are the only uh, heavily carbon negative country 
in the world today. The fourth pillar is good governance. And uh, the results of good governance and gross national happiness, you don't need to look further than in uh, the way democracy was introduced in our country. In fact, democracy was not introduced, it was imposed. Uh, we, the people, did not want democracy. Obviously, we didn't have to fight for democracy. It was imposed by our king on uh, a very reluctant people. So measured, seen through the prism of the four pillars, we have had some measure of success, I do believe. I was going to ask, uh, just picking up on your point about the Buddhist culture there, and you mentioned that it is, you have a small and you know relatively isolated country, I suppose, that for a long time didn't have that much relationship with, with the outside world. Is it easier to pursue a policy like this in a country where the community is already quite cohesive and you have a sort of historical tradition of a, of a shared culture? Uh, we are not uh, homogeneous. Uh, you know, Bhutan is nothing but tall mountains and deep valleys. And this has cut off different parts of the country. Even though we are uh, one country, our peoples and our cultures are fairly, fairly uh, uh, diverse. And we have a large uh, population, uh, migrant uh, population from Nepal also. They are Hindus. So about 30% of our population are Hindus. So within the country, we are not as homogeneous as people uh, think of us. Secondly, yes, we are landlocked. But uh, with globalization today, uh, being landlocked is no security. In fact, with globalization, we have a lot of opportunities to reach out to the world, as indeed today's conversation is a result of globalization. And the medium of our language we are using is also a result of our globalization, which is all very good. Uh, but if we think of culture and maintaining true to our values and ideals and our culture, uh, then globalization and the internet and social media, uh, popular culture, global culture uh, can be seen as a threat as well. So we have had our challenges. It has not been easy. Also, I mean, it was interesting, again, there you were talking about the environment. I suppose a lot of politicians, and you'll be familiar with this yourself, would say that there are constant trade-offs that you have to make in politics. So the happiness of some people might come at the expense of others. So, you know, if you, you've got the business community saying we need to build more transport links, but the people concerned with the environment are saying, no, we need to, to save our in, environment. How, how did you manage that in terms of working out who would be made happy and who would be made unhappy by particular decisions? We were an isolated country uh, until... Uh, the 1950s. We built our first motor road in the 1960s. So uh, this is still work in progress, development in progress, and we have a lot of work to do. Uh, however, at a very early stage of our development, our kings decided uh, that the environment, uh, the protection of our environment was non-negotiable. I think that they were, uh, our enlightened monarchs were way ahead of their time. Because in the 1970s, uh, one would imagine that the conventional advice by economists to our kings would have been to cut down our forests and to sell our timber and to increase our arable land, to uh, mine our minerals, uh, dig up our minerals and uh, earn uh, revenue so that we can uh, uh, improve the lot of our people. But uh, they resisted. 
And I am sure that these decisions, those decisions were difficult, but they resisted and they persisted. And their perseverance, I do believe, has paid off uh, for Bhutan in a sense that we have inherited a country that is green and it is beautiful, it's vibrant, it is clean. Yeah. Uh, and I do also believe that uh, even though we are a small country, we can be seen as an inspiration by some other politicians, some businesses, and indeed some countries also. For Bhutan, there must have been trade-offs, as you point out. However, the result is that what is, like, what is economic growth for? What is social development for? People must benefit. Now, our people are not as rich as, by any measure, those of the rich countries. However, given that we were a, a totally isolated country just until a few decades ago, today everybody has gone to school. Everybody is going to school. Everybody has access to free medical care. Again, I want to reiterate, this is not at the best international standards, but we don't have to live in fear with uncertainty that our children won't be able to go to school or that the teachers are going to show up in class or that if I get ill or my children get ill, my family gets ill, I will not be able to treat them. I mean, that has been taken care of. So rather than a trade-off, it looks like the principles, I mean, of GNH has allowed our people uh, the best of limited managed economic growth, but with social protection as well. Have you found, though, that as the country has become less isolated and more globalised, that that perhaps opens uh, the citizens of your country up to an idea of greater envy? They might look to the rest of the world and say, you know, why don't we have these those material things? OK, we may be we may be happier in some ways, but we actually like to have what other people have. OK, so again, we go back to the idea of happiness. When you say happier, is it joy? Is it momentary joy? Uh, we're not talking about that. We're talking of the conditions of happiness that give you contentment, that give you a sense of satisfaction and contentment with life. Bhutanese, in general, are happy by that measure in Bhutan. However, you are absolutely correct. We look at the rest of the world and see people uh, with material uh, progress, and we aspire to the same. In fact, today, we have, our biggest challenge is that Many of our youth uh, are leaving for, uh, especially uh, leaving for foreign lands, especially Australia. Uh, Australia because uh, they're going there to study, and they they are allowed to work also. So they study and they work, and uh, are able to pay for their studies, but also to save money. And droves of our youth are going, and this is uh, uh, in a way an opportunity, in a way. It, it, it is an indicator of a success uh, because our, our youth are able to perform in Australia, are able to study there, are able to work there. On the other hand, they will, they will come back uh, more experienced, more knowledgeable, uh, perhaps with some money, and they will be able to invest in Bhutan. Why are they going out? They are going out because they see the world. They are going out because they aspire for more. And they are going out because their aspirations, material aspirations, cannot be met in Bhutan. So you are absolutely correct. What must we do? I do believe that this is a good trend for Bhutan. Uh, this, what many would consider as a brain drain. In the immediate term, I think it's good because they don't have 
the jobs that they want, they aspire for in Bhutan. Uh, and so if they go and study and work abroad, uh, I think it's good because they acquire the skills. They acquire the experience. They see the world at large. They uh, acquire, they're able to engage with uh, best international practice. And uh, uh, the government must make sure that uh, we have plans to welcome them back, to uh, allow them to work and to invest in uh, our own country in the next few years. So then I think that with our youth looking abroad and going abroad to meet their aspirations, while it, is, while it appears to be a big risk, and it, it is a big risk if we don't do anything about it, I see it as a good opportunity. As you say, that's obviously a challenge to, to persuade people to, to come home as well as, as when they've been away. When you travel yourself and presumably when you go to international meetings and you have met other leaders of other countries uh, in the past, what do they want to learn from Bhutan? Are other countries open to some of these ideas or do they just tell you, well, no, you know, our, our system works differently? With political leaders, <laughs> we normally talk about uh niceties. Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, as a small country, we don't have too many, uh, how do I put it, uh, controversial issues to discuss. So we talk of niceties. And in the course of discussing niceties, uh, yes, they do ask us about cross-national happiness and our environment, about democracy, but that's very limited. Yeah? My experience has been scholars, uh, business leaders, uh, thought leaders, they are very interested to hear about gross national happiness. Uh, and for us, we have to be, well, at least I am very, very careful because we don't want to be preaching. We have our own challenges here. We are a small country. We are a poor country. We have our challenges. And uh, the last thing we need to do is project ourselves as uh, Shangri-La, which we are not. And uh, however, it would be a big disservice if we don't, share our journey and our experiences with people who are interested. And so, yes, we, uh, we do talk about gross national happiness. We discuss gross national happiness. Just yesterday, I was at a dinner with a group of Brazilian tourists who, who, who reached out to me to discuss these, uh, our development philosophy of gross national happiness and had a wonderful time. Uh, what I'm trying to say is uh, beyond political leaders, there are leaders from uh, other walks of life uh, who seem to be very interested in the issues uh, in, in gross national happiness, uh, not just in government, but also in business. There's a lot of interest in the environment and how we've protected the environment and why it is that we are uh, a carbon negative country. There's a limited interest in our democracy, and I think that is uh, unfortunate because good governance and democracy, in my view, uh, is absolutely unique in Bhutan. So one interesting point on, on the on the democracy question. I mean, as you'll know, as a democratic politician, um, political careers go up and down. You've had success at the ballot box and, and then also uh, a, a bad result. As on a personal level, how did you cope with that? personal unhappiness and uh, that feeling of that feeling of loss that I know you know a lot of other politicians uh, in the rest of the world will will totally understand well okay so you've got to ask yourself why are you in politics I have to ask myself why am I in politics 
if it is uh, for power, if it is for money, then I have to win. And if I lose, then I should be unhappy. Uh, but if I ask myself, and I can honestly say it is to serve, selfless service is the objective, then winning or losing becomes immaterial. You win regardless of the result. So uh, was I unhappy that we lost? I mean, no, I mean, I'm a private citizen now, and I can still do my job serving. So I, I do not have to win at the uh, at election in order to serve. If I can serve only when I win, then there's something wrong. Uh, then my intention is totally wrong. It's questionable. But specifically what you mentioned, uh, how do you cope with a loss? Yeah, When you fail, how do you cope? Uh, does it make me unhappy? At the moment, it will make me sad. At that moment, it will make me unhappy. But that is not the type of happiness that I'm after, right? I'm looking at life contentment, fulfillment. That is what I call happiness. And momentary ups and downs, uh, uh, while important, uh, should not really uh, feature significantly in my overall well-being and overall happiness. And is that something, a lesson that individuals uh, in other countries can also take from the experience of Bhutan, that it's not just about momentary happiness, that you need to cultivate a more balanced view of life in the round? This is a lesson that I need to learn myself. Uh, I need to be honest to myself. I need to look at myself. I need to grow. I need to... Uh, while uh, emotional happiness and emotional well-being and momentary well-being and joy, uh, uh, this is important. I have to enjoy that. But at the same time, yeah, I must enjoy both the ups and downs. This is, this is what makes me. It's a part of my journey. And uh, at the aggregate level, this is, a, this is what makes Bhutan and this dance journey at the aggregate level. Uh, so... I can't say that others should learn this from Bhutan for the simple reason that this is the journey that uh, I'm still on. And uh, yes, I, I do believe, I do believe that a balanced life, uh, balanced ambitions uh, make for a more well-rounded uh, sort of happiness, a more content uh, uh, life. But I can't say that this is a lesson for the world, okay? Okay, I was going to ask uh, just on a, on a personal level, and this is a question I asked to, to many of our interviewees, if you are you know, f feeling personally low, what are the things that you like to do? What brings you at least sort of a moment of, of cheerfulness or happiness? Ah, uh, for me, for me, okay. <laughs> like all people, I, I have many lows. Yeah? The first thing I try to do is find out why I'm not feeling good. Uh, I, by the way, I studied engineering, so I'm quite logical with this, sometimes very uh, cruelly so to myself. Uh, I have to be able to find out why I'm unhappy. And uh, the moment I find that out, then that's like half the unhappiness disappears. And then I work on it. It, 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 it may be nothing. It may have something to do with ego. It may have to do with arrogance. It may be because uh, of my, uh, I have confidence issues, maybe because I feel shy, or it could be something substantial. I hurt somebody. I did something wrong. 
or I got caught doing something wrong, then obviously you have to correct, uh, make amends. Yeah? You have to apologize or uh, correct. But if it is uh, an emotional thing, uh, once you realize that it's just emotional, then uh, that's half the battle for me, at least. And uh, well on my way to becoming happier again. At a, this is more immediate, sort of uh, at the immediate level. But at a long-term level, like I said, it's, this is a part of me. It's a part of my journey. It's what makes me, me. Uh, it is my narrative. And I can't just look at the ups and the, and the joys and my successes and, and celebrate only those. I've got to celebrate my failures and my low points. And in fact, celebrate how I have perhaps overcome them. And then when it comes to the ups and the successes, celebrate how I have uh, uh, enjoyed them with humility. But this is at a uh, long-term sort of a thought process. That's lovely. Thank you very much indeed for, uh, for talking to us. I really appreciate mm. you uh, taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Terry. I, Thank you. I, I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank oh, you very much. It's a pleasure. I hope I, have, I hope I have the occasion to meet you in person and maybe interview you. Uh, <laughs> uh, so because I, I can see that I have a lot to learn from you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very kind. Thanks for listening to this Head Talks podcast. We hope you found it helpful and interesting. You can find many more talks on our website at headtalks.com or listen to our podcasts on all the usual channels.